All right, welcome to Ed Ideas. This is Brandon Tatum. And today we actually have my college basketball coach on the stage. It's Dr. Josh Graves. It used to be Coach Graves. He's the author of several books. Uh, most recently, he wrote How Not to Kill a Muslim. He is a preaching minister at Otter Creek Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is one of our great thinkers right now in theology. And really excited to have him on the stage, and I hope you enjoy. So we like to debate things in my house, um, and we like to have fun arguments. The other day, my two oldest boys, you're going to see a picture of the two oldest. We have three sons, but our oldest two, actually you're not going to, because I'm supposed to do it. That's right. Yeah, there's the two oldest. Uh, Lucas is on the left, and Finn is on the right. Um, so we were having a debate the other day, driving home from church, about whether humans are animals. Now think about it. A lot of theologians have argued about this, right? Philosophers, um, some of the best and worst music we've ever made. Are humans, in fact, animals? Um, Finn, our middle son, uh, if you're into the Enneagram, 99% sure he's a 7 on the Enneagram because everything is awesome all the time. He took the position that animal, humans are in fact animals. My oldest, Lucas, who's very introverted, very rational, he's driven by math and science, super competitive, um, he took the position that in fact there's no way human beings are animals. Now, uh, Lucas is a rising third grader. He'll be in third grade this fall, and Finn is a ri rising first grader. So I was really interested as a dad to know what kind of intellectual DNA do these kids have after all, right? Um, and I was ready to take credit for all the brilliant and ready to blame their mom for all the things that didn't fit together in the argument. So I told them when we got home, they wanted to go out and play basketball, and I told them, no, before we go out and play basketball, we're going to have a debate. We're going to have a family debate, and we're not going to pick a winner and a loser, but we are going to see what you can do with this intellectual conundrum that we have stumbled upon. So, Finn, rising first grader, six years old, he came up with the following, and I have the literal proof, Exhibit A, if this is the court of law, I have not doctored any of the things that I'm about to read. This is his actual handwriting. He wrote on the top of this sheet, we are animals. We have teeth, number one. <laughs> we have claws. We sleep. This is my favorite one. We eat other animals. Other is spelled U-T-H-E-R. <laughs> we itch bug bites. We die. We live in Nashville. I'm just reading what he wrote. We need food and water. We chew, spelled C-H-O-O. -O. We hunt. We have babies, to which I said, we have babies? We have babies? Uh, we go to the bathroom. This, is, this became a big part of the debate among a, a nine and a six-year-old boy, right? We play in the snow. He has Michigan roots. Now, Lucas, the oldest, listened to these arguments and had a look of suspicion. So he went to his room 
and he came up with his own argumentations to refute that of his obviously inferior younger brother, right? Here were Lucas's responses to this first claim by Finn. We are not, in fact, animals. We are humans. Animals don't drive vehicles. We do. Humans don't have tails. Animals do. We actually spent a lot of time on tails. Did not see that coming. (laughs) Animals are naked. We are not. Most of the time. Animals don't play sports. They don't use technology. They don't play board games. They don't have debates that their dad makes them do. <laughs> animals, this, this was a great one. Animals don't speak English. They don't have trampolines. Animals don't dye their hair. Animals don't believe Jesus is the Son of God. He's a preacher's kid after all, right? Humans can't eat poisoned food and live, but animals can. Animals don't celebrate holidays. Humans don't eat other humans. Animals eat each other. We live in houses. They live outside. Animals don't have toilets. His final answer. (laughs) What I want to challenge you to think about, um, there's another picture of them. What I want to challenge you to think about for the next 25 minutes um, I'm assuming that this room is full of people of faith. Um, I don't want to necessarily assume everyone in here is Christian, although obviously that is the tenor of this gathering. What I want to challenge you to think about is whether or not the Christian faith that you practice and that you are inviting students to practice is in fact helpful in the project of figuring out what it means to be a human. Because it is my contention that one of the great gifts of being a Jesus person is that we show humanity how God intended humans to experience human life from the very beginning. And the reason we put Jesus at the center of our faith, right, and not our interpretation of the Bible, but the reason we put the person of Jesus at the center of our faith is because Jesus is not just the greatest human who's ever lived. He is God's attempt to say, here's what the human experience could be. And many of us who grew up in evangelical or fundamentalist traditions, we got the divinity of Jesus. We we got it. We read the case for Christ. We're in it. We believe it. He is the divine Son of God. We got it. But then when it came to the humanity of Jesus... We started humming because we didn't know what to say. Oh, yeah, he's, yeah, he was born and did stuff and built stuff. And, but what does it really mean to say that the Son of God became a human being with skin and flesh? Does the Christian faith that you practice and you invite your students into expand their understanding? of what it means to be a human created in the image and essence of God. I had a rabbi several years ago in Nashville um, teach me about Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And I've been around rabbis. Detroit is a a heavily Jewish populated area where I grew up. So I've, I've been around Jewish thinking and rabbis for at least 15 years. But this rabbi taught me something about Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 I've never forgotten. 
Did you know that when the name for God switches in Genesis 2, you go from Genesis 1, which is the generic word for God, Elohim, to Genesis 2, which is the specific word for God, which we would transliterate into English as Yahweh. Uh, Because of the German influence, we sing songs that have Jehovah. It's the same word, Yahweh. So you go from the general Elohim to the specific Yahweh in Genesis 2. So think about this. This rabbi taught me several years ago. You have other creation stories at the time that Genesis 1 is written. The Gilgamesh epic is one of them. The Enuma Elish is another one. So it's not like Genesis is the first time that humans tried to explain how we got here. Who put us here? What's our purpose? What's this whole thing about being human all, all about? But what Genesis does it is it enters into, as Dr. Smith was saying this morning, it enters into this tournament of narratives, these competing liturgies, to say the Gilgamesh epic says this is what it means to be human, and the Enuma Elish says this is what it means to be a human, which, spoiler alert, it's not very appealing. And Genesis 1 says, actually, those are false narratives. Oh, there's some truth in them, but they fall short. Genesis 1 says that this God, this force, this benevolent energy who holds the whole cosmos together in in God's crowning moment, God's crowning achievement, he takes this one human and he forms them into two. This is Genesis 1. Don't skip ahead to Genesis 2, right? In Genesis 1, he takes this one human and then they become male and female. And somehow the community of male and female represents the beauty and the mystery of the community of Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And in verse 27 and verse 28 of Genesis 1, God says, it's not just good, as he has said six times before in Genesis 1. Now he looks at humans as the center of creation. And he says, now these men and women, this is what I'm talking about, right? This is very good. Love tov in Hebrew. It's really, really good. Pay attention. So when people say, why do you put such an emphasis on the relationship of religion and what it means to be human? I say, because I read the Bible. And that's what the Bible does. Many of you were brought up, many of us were brought up in a tradition where we started reading the Bible at Genesis 3. Don't look at porn. Don't drink until you're 21 and then you can only have one. Right? That's Genesis 3. What's wrong with the world? The sin, the violence, the deceit. Genesis doesn't start in Genesis 3. It starts in Genesis 1 with the beauty of creation, with the goodness of life, with the centrality of human vocation to steward and watch over this thing that God has given us. And God has infused within us His image to be image bearers in the world as Dr. Smith was talking about this morning. So when you switch to Genesis 2, The language goes from the generic word for God, Elohim, to the specific word for God, Yahweh, to which this Protestant minister said 12 years ago to the rabbi, why? And the rabbi said, because in every generation, humans forget that the image of God has been placed in every person. Not just the people you like, not just the people who think like you and talk like you and dress like you and listen to the same music that you listen to, but that the image of God has been placed in every Jew, in every Hindu, in every Buddhist, in every angry atheist, right? 
The image of God, even if you have to squint to see it, has been placed in every human who's ever lived. By the way, this isn't even Christian yet. I'm just doing Judaism 101. So if you don't like it, it's Jewish, right? So the rabbi says this, if you take the sacred name for God, which is in the upper left-hand corner of this book cover, if you take the, the sacred name for God, normally read left, uh, right to left, right? Hebrew is different than English. If you take the sacred name, he says, the rabbis have taught for 4,000 years that the word Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, is how we would transliterate the Hebrew into English today. It actually forms the human body. And he says the reason this is significant, the gift of the Jews to the world, is to remind everybody that the image of God's status is not an intellectual idea. It is woven into the very structure of your skeleton. And there's nothing you can do to completely erase the image of God essence that you and I and everyone else carries on planet Earth. So when I'm driving in Brentwood, Tennessee, and my boys are arguing whether humans are animals or not, whether humans are actually animals, I'm paying attention because as they get older, there is a lot at stake in that debate. And here's what I love about the debate. They're both right. This is what Genesis 1 and 2 is saying. We are divinity and we are dust to steal from C.S. Lewis, right? We are half gods and we are half creatures. We live in the paradox of being of the angels but also fallen and broken. And what evangelical traditions have tended to do is to emphasize the brokenness. And what some other traditions have tended to do is to emphasize uh, the perfection and the beauty. And Genesis doesn't let us pick between those two. So my journey has been, um, I grew up in Detroit, and I now live in Nashville, so I'm about 600 miles from where I grew up. Where I grew up in Detroit um, was a fairly diverse, I mean, it wasn't Man- it wasn't New York City or L.A., but it was a fairly diverse place to grow up. Um, and by diverse, I don't mean like, man, I had some Baptist friends that I grew up with. I, I mean, like, um, I knew the difference between Sunni and Shia and I knew the difference between uh, a Lebanese Christian and a Lebanese Muslim. And I knew the difference between... And as I, um, as I kind of came online to the kingdom of God and teachers that I had in uh, public and private contexts, public school and private school contexts, I started to develop a burden or a passion for Christians to interact with Muslims in a way that was true of Jesus. I was in college when 9-11 happened, so it was deeply formative for me. You know, they've done all this research now on how people remember 9-11, and it's absolutely fascinating. Malcolm Gladwell's latest podcast does a little riff on this if you want an example of this. But it's crazy how people remember 9-11 differently, just if you take people who were living in Manhattan at the time. But what we know now, some 17 years later, is that was a watershed moment for young adults in the United States, specifically North America generally. It was my generation's Pearl Harbor. So I'm a junior in college, September 11, 2001, and I'm walking to the student center about to go to class, 
and I see all of these students huddled around the TV, I think listening to, to Broca and Peter Jennings were the two major voices at that time. It happened to be that that morning I was on my way to the funeral of my roommate's great-grandmother, Hattie Mae Robinson. We were going to Ebenezer Baptist Church in inner-city Detroit, and our basketball coach was going to drive us in his Cadillac, the, his son, me, and my roommate, down. And so on the drive down from Rochester to downtown Detroit, we're listening. They have brought uh, Peter Jennings' voice from ABC TV onto the radio. I don't ever remember them doing that, but they had piped his voice into the radio station that we were listening to, and he was describing the fall of the second tower. And I remember, I will never forget this, I was 21, 22 years old, and my basketball coach said to me, we will never be the same. Uh, something, uh, something, uh, something became alive in me during that time. And then, you know, over the next three years, I went and did seminary, did a Master of Divinity degree, and learned a lot about Jesus' Jewish roots and Christianity. But something just would not let me go about, about what the responsibility is of Christians in the United States to Muslims. I had the privilege of doing a doctorate degree at Columbia Seminary in Decatur, which is just a suburb of Atlanta, at a time when there was a, an Old Testament scholar there named Walter Brueggemann. Some of you will know that name. Um, and Brueggemann called me to his office one day, which is like going to see the Wizard of Oz. Like, uh, it, was, it was a surreal thing. But he knew I was a stone Campbellite tradition, Churches of Christ. He called me a Campbellite. At that time, I was the only Church of Christ person in the whole program. And he said, Graves, you're a Campbellite, right? Uh, I was like, I guess, sure. <laughs> like, and he said, um, what are you going to do your dissertation on? This was first year of a four- or five-year program. He said, what are you going to write your dissertation on? Um, and I said, well, I'm, I'm not really sure. And he said, I have one piece of advice. He had just uh, read a paper I had written on something in Genesis. And he said, I have one piece of wisdom for you. And I thought, you know, my entire program and all the money that I'm paying is worth this moment right here. <laughs> and he said, do something that matters. Meaning, don't write a dissertation on a hanging participle, participle in James 2. <laughs> right? Like 30 years from now, my boys are going to be like, hey, what, what's your doctorate degree in? Like, Let me tell you about the great controversy of the participle in James chapter 2. <laughs> So that sent me on a six-month kind of inner reflective journey of thinking about um, this pr the, the moment. We still find ourselves in this moment in American culture, um, including the transition from the presidency of George W. Bush to Barack Obama and then the transition from Barack Obama now to Donald Trump. And what a unique moment in time this is for the church to know our story. Uh, and not just to know precepts and doctrines and little things we can pull out of the Bible, but to actually know the one to whom the Bible points. Which, by the way, is the whole point of having the Bible in the first place. Right? So, I've been on this journey for the last 15 years, and I'm learning. And here's the conviction that I've come to. So I wrote this book a few years ago called How Not to Kill a Muslim. If you want to kill Thanksgiving conversation, just tell people, I'm reading this book right now, this guy... Uh, the book's called How Not to Kill a Muslim. Everyone leaves the room. In fact, 
uh, four months before this book came out, I was in Michigan with my family. I have a brother-in-law who's a lieutenant colonel in the Army. I have another brother-in-law who's now out of the Marines. Uh, by the way, they happen to be the two most open-minded people in my family, which is a very interesting thing because sometimes the family members of military want to support the military more than the military wants you to support them on certain topics. So my brother-in-law is a lieutenant colonel. He will be a colonel probably in the next five years. He and I talk about what I'm about to share with you all the time, and, and we go back and forth. He's done two tours in Afghanistan. He's been to Iraq twice. He's been all over uh, the Balkan, what we call the Balkan states. Um, and I've, I've come to this passion and conviction. We have less than 4 million Muslims living in the United States. We have a population in the United States of roughly 320 to 335 million people. We have less than 4%, or I'm sorry, less than 4 million Muslims. It's like a percent and a half living in this country. And yet the amount of fear, the amount of rhetoric, the amount of energy that has been given in certain parts of our, our culture about what, how we are supposed to relate to Muslims is absolutely ridiculous. So that set me on a journey to think about, does Jesus have anything to say to our contemporary experience of both Islam and Christianity within the United States and Islam and, Islam and Christianity around the world? So let me just give you some basic figures. Islam and Christianity combined make up half the world's population. About 2.2 to 2.3 billion Christians in the world, and yes, I'm counting Catholics. Protestants are always like, well, did that number include Catholics? Hmm. Yes, I'm counting Catholics. Because of the current pope, I'm counting all of them, right? Um, previous pope, not so much. So, uh, current, if, if you take the, the uh, projected numbers, by 2050, there will be just as many Muslims in the world as there will be Christians. That mostly has to do with birth rate, not evangelism, unless you're Catholic and then they're the same thing, right? Some of you will get that tonight. That's actually really funny. So if you take all the Christians in the world, 2.3 billion, and all the Muslims in the world, 1.2 billion, you get about half the world's population. Now, within the United States, you only have 4 million. Around the world, right, there are a billion two, a billion five, depending on whose numbers you look at. So the United States is uniquely positioned because of our resources, and I would argue because of the deep influence of Christianity within the United States. The United States is in a, an incredibly significant moment in time to impact the conversations that are happening both with, within our own borders and around the world about what the future relationship of Christian, Christianity and Islam looks like. And before you say, but yeah, but what about, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to me. I'm talking about, I'm talking to Jesus people who have made a commitment to this very particular teaching, this very particular way of life. Uh, so let me do this something uh, very quickly with you. Um, in Luke chapter 10, you guys know the story, it's the Good Samaritan. I found that to be a beautiful paradigm to help people to understand why we have to know and love our Buddhist neighbors, our Baha'i neighbors, our Jewish neighbors, but most importantly, our Muslim neighbors. Jesus chooses a Samaritan as the hero of the story of Luke chapter 10. You guys know the story, right? Guy comes to test Jesus. He says, hey, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, 
you're a smart guy. You read the law. How do you work it, right? Because no one just reads the Bible. That's what Jesus is saying to the guy. How do you work it? How do you interpret it? Now, this guy is really sharp. He quotes Jesus back to Jesus. Uh, Great question, Jesus. I once heard this guy say that the chief essence of religion is to love the Lord your God with everything you have, your heart, soul, mind, strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this guy has already picked up on how sneaky Jesus is, right? Jesus takes the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, and this random passage in Leviticus 19, what Scott McKnight calls the Jesus Creed, and he marries them together. He's adding to Judaism. Or he's calling Judaism back to what it was always supposed to be. This guy picks up on that and he says, how could he refute me? I'm quoting his own sermon back to the preacher. Preachers love that. (laughs) You got it, Jesus said. You do this and you will live. Now when we hear eternal life, we think heaven. This guy means I want to participate in the realm of God as it's being enacted in the world. You got it. Do this, Jesus says, and you'll be alive. You will be close to God. You'll be living. But, as Luke says, this guy wants to justify himself. And so he asks a question that's telling. He says, and who is my neighbor? Remember, Jesus had tacked on Leviticus 19 to the Shema. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And this guy says, who's my neighbor? What he's really asking is, if I know who my neighbor is, then I know who my neighbor isn't. Right? If I build a wall, I can put my neighbors on this side, and then I can put the people who aren't my neighbors on this side. We do that spiritually, we do it intellectually, we do it all the time. Insiders and outsiders. In any gathering of people, that, that dynamic's at work. And he recognizes, Jesus recognizes this in the moment, so he's like, okay, smart guy, here's what I'm saying. You've got a Jew. The only way the story makes sense in Luke 10 is if the guy who gets beat up is a Jew. You've got a Jew, and he's traveling the dangerous road down from Jerusalem, because anytime you leave Jerusalem, you're going down. And he said he, he falls into a hand of thugs, and he's beaten, presumed dead. He looks dead. And two different religious guys come by, and they look, but they don't see. Do you remember this in the story? They walk by. And they move over to the other side. But a Samaritan, the rival of Jews in the first century, right? For Sooner fans, but a Texas Longhorn. Uh, Where I grew up, a Michigan State Spartan. Nothing good comes out of Lansing, right? But a Samaritan walks by and looks and sees. Because for Jesus, there's a difference between looking and seeing. You can look at someone and not see them. The Samaritan walks by and he doesn't see a Jew. He sees a human made in the image and likeness of God. And he is more bonded by that humanity than he is defined by the differences of their religious interpretations. But you worship on this mountain. But you worship on this mountain. But this is your doctrine. Do you go to this church? None of that matters when you're half dead. He looks and he sees. And there are only two times I can count in the Gospel of Luke that Luke uses this word. It's, it's almost like a Russian word. It has all consonants and no vowels. It says uh, he is moved with compassion. He is moved in his innermost body. Like it's a gut, visceral response. And the Samaritan moves over. 
He has compassion. Pity's a horrible translation. Compassion, he takes care of him. He takes him to a hotel. He, he tells the, the innkeeper, I'll be back tomorrow, and if there's a bigger bill, I'll take care of it then. And then the camera flips, and now Jesus is asking the questions, which is why in the Gospels you should always be careful when you want to trap Jesus, right? He always wins. At the end of the conversation, Jesus is like, I'm asking the questions now, smart guy. Uh, which, one of the, which one of these was a neighbor? And it is telling to me that the lawyer cannot let the word Samaritan come to his lips. We have words like that in culture. We don't even want to speak them because we think, ugh. He can't even say the Samaritan was the hero. The Samaritan was the one who did what the kingdom of God requires us to do. He says, the one who showed mercy. And I love this because Jesus' answer is this conference. Go and do likewise. Oh, you got your religion all worked out in your head? That's great. Go do it. Let me see it. Let me see it with skin. Um, you might find this interesting to know. This was, I'll, I'll try to do this in five minutes. Uh, you might find it interesting to know that lots of preachers and theologians get their hands on this story and they do all kinds of things with it. Uh, the first thing that preachers do is they say, you know what, this story is really about just being a good person. You just, it's just good to do good. So if you're driving down Interstate 65 in downtown Nashville and someone's on the side of the road and their car is broken down, change their tire. It's good to do good. The, the apostles and Acts are described as, and they went around doing good. There's a phrase like that in the Gospel of Luke, and Jesus went around doing good. It's good to do good. Uh, if you ever watch local news, which I do not recommend, but if you watch the local news, um, unless you like to be entertained, then the lo local news is often fun. If you ever watch the local news, you'll notice almost every week there's a Good Samaritan story. And this is the basic interpretation. Just be a good person. The second layer of how preachers and theologians interpret that passage is they say this. This isn't really about doing good. This is about choosing love over keeping the law. Now, you have to do some real interpretive gymnastics with the Old Testament to do this, but the traditional interpretation in this approach says the reason the two religious guys couldn't care for the guy who'd been beaten on the side of the road is this. They thought he was dead. And if he's dead, they're contaminated. And if they're contaminated, they're unclean. And if they're unclean, they can't serve in the temple. See how the gymnastics work? The biggest problem is he's not dead. And that's not actually what the Torah says. But it's a great sermon. Choose love over the law, right? When you have a chance, choose love over getting things right. It's not a bad sermon. It's just not what this story is about. The third layer of this story is what I call uh, the Cornell West layer of the story. Cornell West famously said, justice is love made public. And he's committed to that. And he's true to that. Uh, so the third layer of this story is that Jesus understands that you can't just do private things in private ways, but your religion has to be public. It's got to be out there. It's got to shake things up. It's got to challenge people. It's got to call people to more. And so he offers this story. So I'm having a conversation several years ago with a Jewish professor, not a rabbi, Jewish professor. Her name is Dr. Levine, and I, I am testing all this out on her over spaghetti, I think. We were eating Italian. 
And I said, Dr. Levine, what do you think about that? She goes, it's interesting, which I knew she meant you don't really know what you're talking about. <laughs> and I said, well, how would you tell that story? And she said, those are all interesting points, but that's not what Jesus' original audience would have been thinking about in the first century. So I said, okay, I guess I'm paying for lunch today. Tell me, how would the audience in the first century? And she said, here's what Jesus was doing in the parable. Jesus is saying to his listeners, put yourself in the ditch. And if there's anybody that you would least expect and least desire to help you out of the ditch, now you have understood the weight of why Jesus makes the Samaritan the central hero in the story. Right? And we can do the silly things, right? So if you're an OKC Thunder fan, it's Kevin Durant. Right? It's the cupcake. You betrayed us. I'm in the ditch. I don't want your help. I want Russell Westbrook. We can do the silly part, right? But if you voted for Hillary and you're in the ditch, the last thing you want is for someone with a Make America Great Again hat to come by and help you. If you voted for Trump, the last thing you want is a, is a Bernie Sanders supporter. So many joke possibilities. The last thing you want, right, is a Bernie Sanders. If you're fill in the blank, that's what Jesus is after. Who is the last person that you would expect or desire to go out of their way to help you because the person that you have defined as other tells you more about you than it does about the other. That's, that's pretty good, right? <laughs> Bono has this great line in one of his songs. He says, be careful of your enemies because in the end, it's not your friends who define you, it's your enemies. The people you have made to be the other, as incapable of understanding the will of God in the world, those are the people who are a mirror to reflect back to you the status of your own heart. Every year at Easter, my son asks me the same question, Lucas. Why did they kill Jesus? So far, he has never asked me the evangelical question. Why did Jesus have to die? What he asks me is very intuitive. Why did they kill him? Do you see, hear the difference? And I tell him, they killed him because he told stories like the one in Luke 10. That's why they killed him. We can talk about why he had to die and the songs that we sing, but one of the reasons they killed him, Lucas, is because he challenged everything that they held sacred to keep their religious system operating. It's easy to create a, keep a religious system going when you have enemies and you have good guys and you have bad guys, right? When you have heroes and you have enemies. It's easy. You have a very clearly defined group. This is who's in and this is who's out. And Jesus challenges the whole way of seeing the world in the first century with this parable. So over the last 10 years or so, we've tried to find some creative, subversive ways to build community um, between Muslims and Christians in Nashville. It has not been easy. Um, it hasn't always been fun. But it has been some of the most rewarding work that I have ever been part of. Um, so I'm going to show you a, a piece that uh, PBS did on our work. 
And I'm actually showing, this is an act of confession, I'm actually showing you this because Brandon requested this. I'm not showing this so that you'll come up to me afterwards and say, I love what your church is doing. That's, I'm showing you this because I think sometimes we get so overwhelmed by the complexities of the issues in our world that we become paralyzed and we think, well, I can't do anything. And what I hope that you hear in this conference is that, yeah, you can't do anything, you can't do everything, but you can do one thing. And this is, my, this is for us what it looks like um, when we became committed to doing at least one thing. In a wealthy suburb of Nashville, this small group is gathered to meet some new people and make some new friends. But this is far from a typical social mixer. Half of the people here are Christians and half are Muslims. They've come specifically to bridge interfaith divides. Helping to break the ice is a local evangelical pastor, Josh Graves. He says in a climate often marked by fear and bigotry, Christians have a spiritual duty to get to know their Muslim neighbors. The stereotypes lose their power because they're replaced by true, authentic relationships. It's very hard for people to care about people they don't know. That's just true of humans, wherever you are on planet Earth. This election season, interfaith groups have been condemning anti-Muslim rhetoric by candidates and political campaigns across the country. Several groups have launched national initiatives in response. With anti-Muslim legislation and rallies moving forward in many communities, interfaith leaders are also calling for more local efforts. Nashville is sometimes nicknamed the buckle of the American Bible Belt, but its Muslim population has been growing rapidly. The city now has the largest Kurdish population in the U.S., leading some to jokingly refer to it as Little Kurdistan. Muslims here say they have felt the sting of anti-Muslim rhetoric. Every single week there's radio hosts who bring on people whose sole purpose is to badmouth the religion of Islam or to talk bad about the Muslim community. And I'm talking about very popular, so-called conservative um, radio hosts. And the practical effect of that is there's a real hatred that's constantly being whipped. It's often discounted as rhetoric. In fact, what happens is the candidate is speaking directly to me, speaking to my wife, to my child. And it is not easy to discount such rhetoric when it's about you. I think the most impact of this fear of what's going to happen is on our kids. They are most worried about it, especially my, my daughter, who's a 12-year-old. She's worried that, you know, we may have to move from here. Josh Graves is lead minister at Otter Creek Church of Christ, a megachurch in the Nashville suburb of Brentwood. It's almost impossible as a white educated, affluent Protestant male to understand what it's like for my Muslim neighbors to hear the rhetoric. What I do know is that I have a responsibility because of my sacred texts, because of the example of Jesus, because I have children, I have a responsibility to speak out. What is your response when you see this rhetoric seeming to resonate with some evangelicals? It grieves me because it betrays the fact that people don't always know what's actually in the Bible. Love of God, love of neighbor. Here's the whole essence, Jesus says, of everything that I stand for. Graves is author of the controversially titled book, How Not to Kill a Muslim, a manifesto of hope for Christianity and Islam in North America. 
Although many evangelicals have not been active in interfaith efforts, Graves urges his fellow Christians to counter hate by building meaningful relationships with Muslims. He raises those themes as an adjunct Bible professor at Lipscomb University, a local Christian university. Otter Creek Church has sponsored several events bringing in Muslim speakers to explain who they are and what they believe. You have to look beyond the tag, beyond her scarf, beyond my name, beyond my skin color. You have to see more. In addition, Graves and some of his church members have joined forces with a local interfaith group, the Faith and Culture Center, for the A Seat at the Table initiative, where Christians and Muslims share a meal together. From what I've read in the Quran, in the New Testament, and in the Jewish scriptures, hospitality is a central discipline of life. You can't get around it. Like what you do with your pots and your pans is what you really think about your religion. In our culture, it is, it is very important what we say that uh, unless someone breaks bread with you on the table, he's not a friend. So this is very important. That builds a relationship, friendship, and we need to foster that. This meal took place at the home of Otter Creek Church members Jerry and Sandra Collins. I've become convinced that the kingdom of God is not in the hereafter. It's right here and now, and we can be a part of that. And, and I want, in some small measure, despite my sins and shortcomings, to be a part of the kingdom of God. We have friends we know who are exclusive, who would not, who would not appreciate this. And I was thinking, when I learned that you're going to put this on television, that I, have, I may have family members, I may have friends in other states who will be so shocked I hope not. I hope, I hope they'll say, hooray, I'm glad they did it. We're speaking of people. Organizers say the most important part of the meal is the conversation that takes place. Nobody's asking for approval. People just wanting to know that they're safe in our presence. Here you meet people to people, and the people to people contact certainly allays all kind of fear and suspicion. <laughs> Amir Arain is a neurologist at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. He and Graves have become good friends. Often when evangelicals reach out to people of other faiths, the only goal is to convert them to Christianity. Graves says that's not the case for him. Ultimately, I think Jesus is the most compelling thing that's ever happened in human history. I hope Amir becomes a disciple of Jesus in the same way he hopes I become a disciple of the Quran. So we've gotten that out of the way, and then we live our lives. The end game is working together for a fl the flourishing of the city you live in. Graves says he has wide support for his interfaith work within his congregation, but he acknowledges some parts of the evangelical community don't approve. He says he's heard the murmurings. The Muslim lover, the Muslim loving pastor, which I have responded to when I have the chance to say, what choice do I have? I love everybody. Like, I don't think I get to pick who I love. Faith and Culture Center President Dawood Abu Diab says the efforts of Christians to reach out has been deeply encouraging to Muslims, especially during the most difficult times. In 2008, his Islamic center in Columbia, Tennessee was firebombed by three white men. Those were three young men who have self-identified as Christians, who lived in our community and who later on explained that 
in their perception, what we were doing in that Islamic center was against the teachings of their Bible. But in the days after the attack, Abu Diab says Christians, Jews and others mobilized to support members of the destroyed center. For me personally, that changed my definition of what a community is. It was the people who hold the same values um, in their hearts. Paul Galloway, executive director of the American Center for Outreach, says people of many faiths are hoping the bridge building in Nashville can be a model for other communities struggling over religious diversity. He showed me a recent ad in the Tennessean newspaper, which was signed by leaders of many different faiths. No matter what we believe, where we come from, or what our differences might be, together we're better. And it really just says, no matter what else happens across the world, no matter what happens um, in Tennessee, as Nashville, our values are to be welcoming and we're going to work together and respect each other. And Graves believes that's a message that is needed now more than ever, not just here in the U.S. He says he hopes someone in Egypt is writing the book, How Not to Kill a Christian. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you enjoyed the conversation, please hit subscribe and follow our podcast. It's important that we continue these relevant conversations for Christian education.